Coincidence is the word that we use when we can't see the levers and pulleys. Emma Bull. A lot of us went to summer camp or some kind of summer camp when we were kids. I went to a pretty unique version of summer camp growing up in Colorado, I guess, looking back on it now. Rather than spend a day with a church group to be picked up by your parents in the evening or driving a few hours to spend a long weekend at a few cabins by the lake for five straight summers, I spent a month away from home at a camp in Rocky Mountain National Park. As you might imagine, the cost of such a camp is prohibitive for a lot of families. Housing, food, any other expense you can think of, the insurance that camp must have alone, now that I think about it. In my day, it would cost thousands of dollars for a term. A term was what you called the one-month stay. There are two terms each summer at this camp, and it still exists today, Chile camps. And now I just looked it up. A term at Chile costs $7,000, which is obviously prohibitive for a lot of families. My family, actually, despite the price tag, was no exception. But my family did have some connections with Chile going back generations. My mother was a camper there and then a counselor. Her sister, who met her husband there, was also a camper and then a counselor. All of her kids went. My mom's kids went. So we had, yeah, I was that guy. We had some kind of an in. And it wasn't a financial in, I can tell you that. But I know that we must have been allowed some kind of generational discount, which enabled me to go for several summers. So I was very lucky in that way. And I was also kind of an anomaly there because I didn't come from a lot of money that the sticker price on, on the tuition for the camp required. But most of the other kids, almost all of them did. I was also from Colorado, and the camp is only an hour's drive from where I grew up. Most of the other kids would arrive at the Denver airport from somewhere all over the country, all over the world, to be picked up and then driven to Estes Park, seeing the mountains for the first time. And it was no less formative for me in other ways, maybe, than the other kids, than it was for them. So because this camp was so expensive, and because the average camper had to spend even more money to fly in and get there in the first place, you meet some interesting people during your stay there. I didn't know any other kids from school or anywhere else who were this kind of rich, where your family could spend thousands of dollars to send you off for a month to Colorado for a camp. What you find, the first thing probably you find, is that kids are basically kids, no matter how much money they have behind them. There are obviously, as I'm sure you're thinking right now, there are some exceptions to that. But when they got in that environment where they have no access to money themselves. Money is pretty much irrelevant. Your meals are taken care of. And the whole camp is about outdoor experiences and just being one with nature away from material possessions. There's no video games. There's no television. There's no radio. You're in your cabin and you're in the mountains or you're doing some kind of outdoor activity. And so after my first summer or two at this camp, I'd watch the new campers come in and some would be kind of homesick, maybe for a couple of days, maybe a week. But most of those kids ended up coming back summer after summer. And more than a few came back every single year until we all aged out at like 17. The background to all these different campers are not what I'd call diverse necessarily, but their characters kind of were. Some of their parents, it was pretty evident, had learned about this camp from maybe some of their rich friends, and they heard about the discipline and the determination and the resiliency and the self, just sense of self that their kids had experienced over the course of a month away. And so they signed their own children up, no doubt, treating it as a military school option of sorts, a bridge of maybe their own 
shortcomings or misconnections in raising their own kids. This was not a military camp by any means, but it did offer entree to some of life's more valuable lessons. The way it works at Chile, at least back then, is you could pursue any of these lessons basically in whatever form that you chose. Some kids fell in love with horses and they rode almost every day. Some archery, some woodworking, some kids just dabbled in all of the above. The way the curriculum structure of the camp is set up is that you got to try, you had to try some of everything at some point, and you always had to be doing something every day, but you could focus on one area much more than others if you wanted to. So for me, it was the mountains, hiking and backpacking. And so for a whole month, every summer, for five years, as a teenager, I hiked hundreds of miles ultimately almost a thousand miles in all in Rocky Mountain National Park. Those might be day hikes. You go up to a lake and come back three, four miles, something like that. You might leave at three o'clock in the morning, an EB, as we called it, an early breakfast to summit a mountain before the afternoon and the weather came in and come back down. Or you might go backpacking for two or three or five days away from camp and summit several peaks along the way. During one of those overnight trips, and I did so many that I don't remember where we were going, but this one was a two-day backpack, a shorter one, and I was partnered with a kid from Chicago named Drew. Drew was not liked by the other kids. As I said, most of the campers came from money, but Drew especially wore that fact like a neon sign around his neck at all times. Sometimes literally in the form of a scarf that probably came from some store on Michigan Avenue that I probably couldn't pronounce, let alone be allowed to enter. He was seen as, to put it nicely, a big dork. And we all know how kids can be about these things. Not everybody was mean to Drew, and I wouldn't say that anyone was bullying or outright cruel or anything like that. But Drew was definitely an outcast. He was not accepted. He was just, it wasn't his thing. But he was there. He's in Colorado for the month. He can't go home. And so we're on this overnight backpack. And my recollection is that I offered to be his partner on the backpack after nobody else would. So as his backpacking partner, we're both accountable for each other's whereabouts at all times. We're both accountable for each other's safety at all times. And we share all of the backpacking and the camping responsibilities with each other to include supplies. And we had to stay in the same tent on that night. And now that I'm telling you this story, a couple of things are coming back to me now. I know he was not a fan of drinking water out of a stream. I think it might have been the yellow color of the water from the iodine tablets that you put in. I seem to remember that he was a very chatty hiker, which I am not, but that most of his monologue out loud was to complain about something. I think he probably found it kind of surreal that somehow he he was walking in the woods and that he was on his way to some place where he would sleep in a tent for the rest of the night. I don't even remember honestly how much of this is real or how much of this is just backfill. That Drew has just become a caricature in my mind, in my recollection at this point. But I do remember for sure one thing about Drew. His last name. Walgreen. Drew Walgreen. Drew was somehow a descendant of the Walgreens drugstore chain. And I remember having a conversation with him about this because this was fascinating to me. Maybe not necessarily strictly polite, but frankly, it was the easiest common ground that I could think of. He struck me as somebody who was endowed with corporatism as descended from money as maybe any other person I've met before or since. I never talked to Drew after that summer. 
and I've always hoped that he would grow up to become some kind of important corporate officer in that huge company, maybe even the CEO one day. So I never Googled his name. I never followed up with what might have happened to him until very recently as a result of what we'll be talking about in this episode. Drew is not the CEO of Walgreens today. He's not a high-ranking officer. He might be involved in the company somehow, probably somehow, if only on paper. But I stopped researching Drew shortly after I started because I found a newspaper article from the early 2000s, which would have been around the time he and I spent together. And it refers to Drew Walgreen, or someone named Drew Walgreen, as being a child and the subject of a custody dispute. And then I remembered that part of our conversation in the tent on that night, his reason or a reason for his unhappiness from his youth. I remember him telling me about his family and how they were connected to the company and his parents and the money. And so I closed the computer and I think now I'll leave Drew exactly where he is in my recollection. And Drew, if you ever hear this somehow, I hope things ended up well for you. I hope that you found whatever you've been looking for. In the context of the past, especially, synchronicities are almost impossible to avoid once you've collected enough life experience. I doubt I've walked into a Walgreens for the last 20 years without wondering what happened and what became of Drew. We've all probably been inside a Walgreens, it's safe enough to assume, and even if he somehow haven't, I don't know how that's possible, but you've certainly heard of Walgreens. And one of those millions of people who've been a customer at that massive corporate drugstore chain founded by Charles Walgreen of Chicago, Illinois in 1901, was a woman named Paula Prince. Paula's visit to her local Walgreens to pick up some Tylenol before Drew or I had even been born was her last. She died shortly thereafter. The story she unwittingly and tragically became a part of on that day has remained without an ending ever since. And the synchronicities of the past have, sure enough, found their way into this episode of this podcast. Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller, and on this month's episode, the story of a not-at-all-enduring murder in the cowboy state, but a murder nonetheless, one that's been altogether forgotten, but one which will lead you into a true crime rabbit hole the likes of which would make Lewis Carroll himself proud, if you choose to follow it. Dead and Gone in Wyoming is made possible by the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. Riverton is a gateway to adventure located right in the middle of the Cowboy State. It's a hub for experiencing the best the state has to offer. Attractions like Yellowstone and the Tetons, world-class skiing, mountain recreation, casino gaming, cultural and historical sites on and around the Wind River Reservation. Riverton has the best access to one of the best states in the country, and when you're visiting, you'll want to stay at the best. The Hampton Inn & Suites is conveniently located, serves a free hot breakfast, too. Make plans to stay at the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming, and feel the Hamptonality. Last month, as we record this episode, on October the 10th, Paramount Plus released a five-part documentary, Painkiller, The Tylenol Murders. 
Beginning in September of 1982, a seemingly random collection of seven people in the greater Chicago area suddenly fell ill and very soon after died after consuming the -the over-the-counter pain medication extra-strength Tylenol, which was, in their case, laced with cyanide. Tylenol that you could buy at the store in 1982 did not feature any of the consumer protections and the safeguards that you'll find today when you buy a bottle of Tylenol. And it was directly because of these events in the fall of 82 that today's Tylenol and many other products are much less tamper-proof. Boxes of Tylenol now are glue-sealed at the point of manufacturing so that it's readily apparent that a box has been previously opened. The lids on the bottles are now more difficult to open, what's called a child-proof packaging design. Once the bottle is open, you'll find a aluminum seal between the lid and the medication, which further gives assurance to the consumer that the contents of the bottle has not been altered in any way since it was manufactured. And the delivery mechanism of the medicine itself has been changed. The pill form of Tylenol can no longer be easily separated to access the medicine in the form of a powder inside of the pill. In 1982, there was no glue seal on the box. The lid on the bottle could be popped open with one thumb. There was no safety seal over the mouth of the bottle, and the pills inside could actually be pried apart, exposing the powder of the medicine itself. So if a person were so inclined, in 1982 and before, the pills could be opened, the unremarkable white Tylenol powder could be taken out and replaced with any kind of powder or liquid. In 1982, a box of Tylenol could be purchased from a store, then brought somewhere else where the box, the bottles, and the pills were all opened, the medicine was replaced with cyanide, then everything was put back together, reboxed, and returned to a drugstore shelf. There was no mechanism in place to prevent this from happening at any point in the process back then. Scientists for Johnson & Johnson, Tylenol's parent company, had actually come forward with some of these ideas before 82, But for whatever reason, these ideas were not acted on by the company, at least not quickly enough. At the retail level, all protections in place at the time focused on getting stuff out of the store, shoplifting, loss prevention. But there was absolutely no concern, why would there be, about a product being returned to the shelf of a drugstore? Because who would do that? And let's say that somebody was caught red-handed, so to speak, trying to do such an unimaginable thing. Who would question someone that just had a bottle of Tylenol in their pocket or their purse? It is a perfect crime, in no small part because of just how unthinkable just the idea is. Murders are committed for some variation of love or money, almost always, which usually means the killer knows the victim. Indiscriminate murders, stranger killings, which are not related to any other crime, so a a robbery gone wrong, let's say, even those are more rare. An indiscriminate mass murder of strangers is the rarest of all kinds of homicides, especially before the relatively new age of mass shootings that we live in today. But the indiscriminate mass murder of unrelated strangers committed by poisoning is a category of homicide that still today is so rare that there's not even really a need to keep track of it. It is statistically not even worth quantifying because you can't learn anything from any trends because it just doesn't happen. It's an impossible outlier, so outside the realm of what might be useful to investigate other similar crimes that it's arguably mathematically not even worth studying. There are no crimes like this, but of course, it happened in Chicago in 1982.
I've always been uninformed about the 82 Tylenol murders. For years, I mistakenly got the crime mixed up with another copycat in Washington state. In that case, long story short, a man poisoned several bottles of over-the-counter medication to kill his wife. So after seeing the national hysteria from 82 in Chicago, the man got the idea to poison his wife, but just for good measure to alleviate suspicion from himself, he thought he would do the same thing and poison random people so that to the authorities, this man's wife was a random victim. They wouldn't look at him for the crime. It didn't work. He was arrested. He was convicted. So when I would hear about the Tylenol killings, for some reason, I would think of that case in Washington state. But no, the Tylenol killer from Chicago in 1982 has never been caught. Seven people died as a result of the original poisonings, and that's not counting any of the numerous copycats that went on for years across all kinds of consumer products, not just medication, but food. It was frankly a mess. It was a national hysteria at the time. Which is not to say the original Tylenol killings did not have any suspects in the investigation. Several suspects were looked into. Task forces investigated and then went away and then were relaunched. Thousands of people were interviewed in that investigation. Hundreds of people were considered suspects or persons of interest, at least. But as of right now, anyway, nobody has ever been arrested or charged for the deaths of seven in Chicago in 1982. Which brings us to Friday night, a couple of weeks ago. After a very long week of work for me at County 10, especially busy, I finally, at the end of Friday, I had a chance to unwind. I don't know what this says about me, but I will unwind with a docu-series, especially of a high-profile case like this in the background. I saw it pop up on Paramount Plus, Painkiller, the Chicago Tylenol murders, and so I started watching it. Early in the second episode, the series moves into, if you watch these kind of shows, a very familiar mode. So we've already covered the basics of the crime, probably in episode one, and in episode two, they start listing some of the people who were investigated, some of the more interesting persons of interest in the case. Person A had their house searched and there was cyanide there, and person B was known to have a grudge against a distributor of Tylenol or one of the drugstores or something like that. Basically running through old newsreels of some of the bigger suspects who were investigated within the first few months of the Tylenol case after September of 82. Listening to this episode so far, you might be wondering what in the world do the Tylenol murders in Chicago have to do with Wyoming? And what does this documentary, this documentary in five episodes, by the way, does not once mention the word Wyoming. What does it have to do with anything that we typically talk about here on this podcast? The connection comes from this short section from the second episode of this series. Now, a lot of the time on these kinds of investigation, you're chasing shadows. At this point on Friday night, a couple of weeks ago, it was pretty late. I had the living room all to myself. I was eating dinner on the couch. My wife and the kids had long gone to bed. It was me and the dog. And usually shows like this, I wouldn't be looking at the screen. It's just background noise. But I was. As they were talking about one of the suspects, old news footage of an abandoned room on the second floor of a house in Chicago that this guy had rented played on the screen. Authorities are stepping up the hunt for Kevin Masterson of Lombard. Until two weeks ago, Masterson rented an upstairs room in this Lombard house, where last week, authorities found two capsules of extra-strength Tylenol and a box of empty gelatin capsules like the kind used in Tylenol. I saw a small table, all kinds of items on the table. Among the items was, unmistakably, a Wyoming license plate. And when I saw that, 
to nobody except my dog, I said out loud, What the f***? So I grabbed the remote, rewound to a couple of moments before I did this probably four or five times, watching the same few moments of that episode over and over and over again. And you might be wondering why. It's just a Wyoming license plate. In the four years of researching stories of murder and disappearance and just criminality in a lot of cases from the state of Wyoming, I've found a lot of information that has not made its way into this podcast for one reason or another. And when I saw that license plate, it clicked. There were no cameras and there there was nobody watching them and no safety measures whatsoever. Right. I'm surprised it hadn't happened before. It did happen before right here in Wyoming. On July 26, 1982, a young janitor in Sheridan, Wyoming, came to the end of a long shift, took a couple of Tylenol, and passed away a short time later. Six weeks after that, the entire country became enthralled in terror when seven people, at least seven people, would take a Tylenol laced with cyanide and die, practically at the same time. But weeks earlier, in that same summer of 82, the idea of extracting the powdery pain reliever from its capsules and replacing them with a lethal poison and then putting back on the shelf arguably what was the most trusted consumer product in America at the time, that idea was unheard of and unthought of. Except somebody had thought of it, six weeks before that, to kill a 19-year-old man in Wyoming. Nobody took notice of the 19-year-old janitor who had died the same way in July until after September. So it took a full month after the Chicago killings for anyone inside of any investigation or outside of it to realize the same thing happened in Wyoming, albeit on a smaller scale. It's difficult not to speculate about these circumstances, almost like a test run in rural Western America before the real thing was unleashed on one of the largest cities in the country weeks later. Reading from a New York Times article published just over a month following the initial Chicago poisonings, which began September 7th, this is from October 9th. The team investigating seven deaths here from Tylenol capsules tainted with cyanide had agents in Wyoming tonight to question several people about the unexplained cyanide death there in July of a young man who reportedly took extra-strength Tylenol. It was learned tonight that the investigation team had dispatched a Wyoming agent of the FBI and one Chicago detective to Sheridan, Wyoming, to investigate the unexplained cyanide poisoning death on July 26 of J. Adam Mitchell, a 19-year-old janitor. Dr. William E. Doty, a pathologist at the Sheridan County Memorial Hospital, who is familiar with the case, became suspicious after the Chicago cyanide deaths. Dr. Doty said in a telephone interview tonight that he asked the youth's mother on Thursday if her son had taken any medication before his death. Dr. Doty said she replied, nothing, just a headache pill, some extra strength Tylenol. She said she thought she had purchased the Tylenol at Buttry Osco, a local food drug store, he said, but had since destroyed the bottle. Dr. Doty said he then called the toxicologist in Salt Lake City, who originally found the cyanide last summer and kept the blood, urine, and stomach contents from Mitchell. Dr. Brian S. Finkel then conferred with Dr. Robert Stein, the Cook County Medical Examiner in Chicago, who quoted the dose of cyanide found in the stomachs of the Chicago-area victims, quote, It was exactly the same as the Mitchell dosage, Dr. Doty said. It's a very tight link. It would be very difficult for these different people to take exactly the same dosage of cyanide without having the same-sized capsule and the same-sized dosage, end quote. 
In an interview tonight, Dr. Finkel confirmed Dr. Doty's account. He said he had compared the Wyoming death to those in Chicago. It turned out, he said, there were a lot of similarities in toxicology. He said that the evidence, as it stands, in no way makes a case, but he said considerable further research was necessary in this case and others. Quote, if the deaths were not clustered, Dr. Finkel said, there is every reason to believe that they would have been singled out as cyanide deaths and there would have been no connection made, meaning the method, modus operandi, end quote. The victims in Chicago appeared then, as it's still assumed now, to be entirely random. Several members of the same family fell victim after consuming the pills from the same tainted bottle. So, so to this point, no credible connection between the victims in Chicago has ever been made. What the Paramount Plus documentary would have the viewer believe is that this case, the Chicago cases, exist in a category that is not unfamiliar to high-profile investigations of this type. They may be unsolved, but they're not necessarily unresolved. So if you want to watch it, I won't unleash any spoilers here, but the filmmakers and the reporters on that project, they do narrow in on one particular suspect in the later episodes. And it's more or less left for the viewer to decide, but they definitely take you down this path of this one particular suspect in the case. That suspect is not the man who was identified in the documentary where the Wyoming license plates can be seen in the news footage of the upstairs room that he'd been renting in Chicago. That man's name was Kevin Masterson. Masterson was a 34-year-old mechanic in 1981. He was a confirmed resident of Jackson, Wyoming, having registered there a 1973 AMC wagon on July 20th, 1981. That would have been just under a year before the poisoning death of the janitor in Sheridan, Jay Mitchell, and just over a year before the poisoning deaths in Chicago. Masterson, in addition to registering a vehicle in Teton County, also had a P.O. box there. We don't know how long or when exactly he was in Wyoming. Not much at all about his time in Wyoming is known. It was reported that Masterson's time in Jackson back in 81, the year before the poisonings in Wyoming and then in Chicago, was, quote, one of several visits he made to the area to visit a relative, end quote. But it's known well enough that by September of 82, he was in Chicago when the Tylenol murders took place. So police there searched his residence, the upstairs bedroom where we found the Wyoming license plate. Authorities found two bottles of Tylenol and two bottles reportedly just marked poison. So obviously, given that, he was questioned in the Tylenol case, but only after they found him. In the end, Masterson turned himself into the FBI in L.A., his surrender to the authorities was voluntary. His demeanor was said to be calm until he was asked about the Tylenol murders, at which point, according to reports, Masterson became confrontational and, I'll just say, hysterical, to put it mildly. Masterson was, just for a moment, person of interest number one in the Tylenol case, but only until he turned himself into the FBI. They investigated him, they did charge him with a marijuana offense, but nothing more, and he was basically cleared at the discretion of no less the Attorney General of the State of Illinois in the Chicago case. In a letter to the editor of the Jackson Hole Guide, a man who claimed to be Kevin Masterson's lawyer refuted the accusation that his client was even a suspect in the Tylenol murders. As a consequence, quote, he has been totally and permanently eliminated as having any knowledge whatever in the matters under investigation, end quote. With some 40 years of hindsight, how interesting is former Wyoming resident Kevin Masterson as a suspect in the Tylenol case? I assume that any sleuthing that you do on your own will result in his name coming up, but probably in the same category that the Paramount Plus producers 
falls back on. That is, he is a notable person of interest, to be sure, perhaps on any top ten list of leads in the case, but likely that's it. The police, the task force, certainly the journalists who worked on the Paramount Plus documentary and many others, believe they know who the Tylenol killer is and that it's not Kevin Masterson. And I wouldn't necessarily disagree. There's certainly not enough evidence to charge, let alone convict Kevin Masterson. The Tylenol terrorism, which is basically what it was, when you think about it, one of the earliest acts of domestic terrorism in modern America, it would be. But I do have a problem. Because over these last several years, I have researched hundreds of homicides and missing person cases. High profile, unheard of. Random sniper killings. Targeted victims, high-risk victims, and children who are only a few months old. Arsons, spree killings, disappearances. All manner of cases across the U.S. and Canada containing hundreds of different criminal signatures. And I'll be the first one to tell you that you would not believe some of the coincidental circumstances that I've come across which end up being misleading to an answer in a case. But never have I seen anything like this in that these seven people are killed in Chicago in a manner which nobody in the history of American criminality has been killed previously. And the exact same thing happened six weeks before in Wyoming and those two cases are somehow unrelated. I can't say for sure that nobody had never thought of this before, to remove and replace medicines with the priable capsules with poison, but certainly not to my knowledge and not the way it happened in Chicago and weeks before in Wyoming. Not just the same MO, but the same medication, not just the same medication, the same type of medication in extra strength, Tylenol. It's a kind of crime that takes some degree of, I hate to say it like this, but genius in its simplicity. Arguably the perfect way to kill someone if you don't care who the victim is. Most people don't think like that, obviously. As I said, it's, it's an act of domestic terrorism. Most people wouldn't do that. But what I mean is most people don't see the world in that way, see those kinds of opportunities in everyday life, for lack of a better word, opportunities. To take something like that, ironically a medicine, and use it as a delivery method for death. Who thinks like that? Criminals in the form of murderers do not think like that. Those people are almost always overcome by their motivations, the reason for wanting someone to be murdered, and they are simply not that creative. They are not that thoughtful in such a simple way. They are consumed with their motivation to the point where the crime itself is almost incidental and is very, very often not creative at all. But the Chicago Tylenol killer was different. He obviously saw the world differently in several ways. And whoever killed Jay Mitchell the same way in Wyoming, whether it be one, two, or more people responsible for eight deaths then between the two states, but always overlooked in the discussion of that high-profile case in Chicago is the connection it unavoidably has to Wyoming. I am open to coincidences in this story. I'm somewhat open to the idea of there being more than one Tylenol killer in Chicago alone. I'm definitely open to the idea that whoever poisoned J. Adam Mitchell in Sheridan was not the same person responsible for the killing of seven people in Chicago, even though it was the same way. Maybe it was two different killers who knew each other 
and the Chicago poisoner was somehow informed or inspired by his friend or coworker or whoever who just arrived from Wyoming. But for all the unbelievable coincidences I've seen in so many cases, I find the idea that Jay Mitchell's murder is in no way linked to the deaths of seven in Chicago impossible which again doesn't help much because we can imagine what those connections might be all day, but it won't get anyone any closer to an answer in either case. And the death of 19-year-old Jay Mitchell in Sheridan, Wyoming, was almost immediately forgotten. Where the seven tragic victims in Chicago, they have lived on in a way through the ongoing unsolved case there. What I know for certain, even though I can't say how, is that what ended in Chicago as one of the most infamous unsolved crimes in American history started somehow six weeks earlier in the state of Wyoming. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. Sources for this episode, the New York Times, the Jackson Hole News, UPI, and the Jackson Hole Guide. Apologize for the lack of answers in this case. There are many who deserve them in the form of the family victims of the seven murdered in Chicago to say nothing of the friends and family of a murdered Jay Mitchell, janitor, 19 years old in 1981 in Sheridan, Wyoming. Somewhere in there is an answer to at least some of it. For those like myself who enjoy a true crime docu-series, especially about a high-profile case like this one, the Paramount Plus documentary Painkiller, The Tylenol Murders, is worth a watch if you're interested in such things. Keep an eye out for that Wyoming license plate in episode number two. By the way, in looking into that license plate for research on this episode, I learned probably too much about it. It was issued to passenger cars between 1978 and 1982. It's one of only two in the whole history of Wyoming in that series that features a fence line on the license plate in addition to the famous Wyoming cowboy silhouette. If you do watch that docuseries, you might be able to help with something, actually. You'll see in that frame of the license plate, you'll see the plate number, the county code, but also the letters AC alongside the plate number, and I'm sure it's not relevant to anything that we talked about in the episode, but I am curious, and I haven't found an answer yet, if anyone knows what the AC on that license plate means or designates or what it did designate at one time on Wyoming plates, I'd love to know. I'm just curious. Shoot me an email, wyomingpodcast at gmail.com. For the moment, though, that's all the time that we have for this month. From everyone right here at County 10 in Fremont County, which is number 10 on your Wyoming license plates. Thank you for listening. I'm Scott Fuller, already looking for already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming.